Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him." So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, "Your father gave this command before he died: Say to Joseph, 'Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you.'" And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, "Behold, we are your servants." But Joseph said to them, "Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones." Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his, he and his father's house. Joseph lived one hundred ten years, and Joseph saw Ephraim, children of the third generation. Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, "I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that He swore to Abraham." To Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here." So Joseph died, being one hundred ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Joseph's words to his brothers in verse twenty. Uh, are one of the most profound, succinct, theologically rich and loaded statements in the Bible. There's this crucial moment where their father Jacob dies, and these brothers have done terrible things to Joseph, and now they're afraid. And he comforts them. He says to them, "As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good."、Um, We should take this statement seriously because it comes from a lifelong of lessons of what Joseph learned. Joseph did not have an easy life. These are not words that are just simply a throwaway line that you say for politeness before your family. Joseph's brothers didn't simply resent him and hate him; they intended to kill him. They sold him into slavery. He never returned to his land.、Um, uh, it, within slavery, he was falsely accused and imprisoned. Uh, he helped somebody who promised to remember him、uh, and forgot him. Over the years, Joseph suffered great and terrible things, and so Joseph learned, first of all, in ways that that some of you know and others intuit, that people mean things for evil.、Uh, that happens in our world.、Um, human beings can have the potential for terrible things. All of us have that potential to some degree. But what Joseph learned in the midst of this. Was that God was with him, and, and again, this is not a quick and easy spiritual lesson, where something sort of bad happened and he prayed and then God fixed it. But Joseph would have gone through the long, extended kinds of confusing periods that many people go through, wondering why it was happening and how to make sense of it. And he comes out of it seeing God's wisdom and goodness. And so we've been considering that as we've looked at this. Uh, uh, the section of scripture, because both of those things are hard to see and hard to believe, but essential, essential not simply to thrive in life, but but for the high life that Jesus calls us to, 
to say that in following me, here are the great things you can be and do. We can only do it if we have the kind of faith we're called to, and in, included in that is belief, conviction of God's goodness and his wisdom. And so, so there's a frankness here. He hasn't become completely cynical, but he knows. Um, he, he doesn't sort of sugarcoat for his brothers. He doesn't make excuses for them. He speaks plainly, and yet without that spirit of spite that we have, we go one way or the other. We try to excuse it and make it like it's no big deal, or we, we try to bring in the jab. Joseph speaks the truth. You meant evil. He speaks that clearly. You meant evil, but he has seen. But God worked for good. God's purposes were good. And therefore, Joseph responds in this moment differently than most of us would, than many people would. He continues the work of reconciliation in this broken family, and he does that because of how he's been shaped by this theological conviction. And therefore, it's worth it for us to think about what is it that makes Joseph in this moment behave differently. Again, the two obvious choices would be to play it off. Hey, it's no big deal. You know, as the brothers think, now he's going to harm us. Uh, it, one thing might have been that he would have made excuses. Look, it's not that big a deal. Or the other to say, actually, now you're going to see <laughs> uh, what you have coming to you. Instead, he tells them, do not fear. And so in that, in, he says it twice. Do not fear because it's clear that they are now afraid. Joseph is now powerful. They are not. When he tells them not to fear, there are two reasons, and I think if we consider that, we can see how this lesson of seeing that people can do evil, but God still works for good, even in the midst of that, how that shapes us in two ways. And I'm going to begin by talking about God in his place, but then moving towards talking about God in our place. But I'm beginning with God in his place because that's one of the reasons Joseph says, you don't need to fear me. So let's begin there. Um, he tells them uh, the foundation, what he's learned. You meant this for evil, but God meant for good. Um, and then he goes on uh, to tell them, don't be afraid. And he says the rationale, and this is verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's a rhetorical question. He seems to be implying he is not. And they could respond by saying, actually, you sort of are in that you know, outside of Pharaoh, you're the most powerful person here. Think about if you were here last week or if you read the previous passage, Jacob's funeral, chariots, horses, an entourage. I mean, who's more powerful in their presence than Joseph? In a sense, Joseph is like God to them. But that's human nature. <laughs> human nature is we want ourselves to take the place of God, and therefore fear is the currency of how we relate, of how we control one another, how we respond through intimidation. And Joseph is different. In this moment where he would have the right to do it, he'd be justified and he had the ability. He says instead, do not be afraid. And his question, am I in the place of God? A great way for the book of Genesis to end and for this story to resolve. See, the book of Genesis opens, the first book of the Bible, with the creation stories, Genesis 1, or 1 and 2. And what's interesting is we find in them God, by design, wants us to be like him. That's God's desire, his intention. It says he made humanity in his image. So you think of a mirror. You look in a mirror and the mirror is not you. The mirror is a reflection of you. You are three-dimensional. You can leave the mirror, but the, the, the image depends on your existence in the mirror. But if you're looking in the mirror, you see an image. There's something there about the, the humanity in God's image that is we look to God 
not the entirety of God. We don't become unchangeable. We don't become omnipotent. But there's something about God's attributes of his truth, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, that are meant to be reflected out of us as we go into the world. And so God wants us to be like him in very specific ways. Not in all ways. We will never be God. God is unique. But in certain ways, we are to be like him. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 is the story of the temptation. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, the paradigm story of humanity turning from God. And part of the, the, the technique of the deception is to ask them, well, God told you um, not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's a tree of life. God wants you to have life. God wants you to be like him. But there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you don't have understanding of, but God has warned you about it. Did God tell you not to eat of it? And they say, yes. And the serpent wisely, he's crafty, he, he says, God knows when you eat of it, you will be like him. And that's intriguing. Uh, but it's a little bit problematic because it's a corrupted statement because God wants them to be like him. But the problem is if they disobey him and eat of this particular tree, they won't become more like God. They will become less like God. And that's where they were fooled. But that, that uh, the offer, God knows you will be like him, that creates the kind of doubt that says maybe God is not good and wise. Maybe God is withholding something. It becomes tempting to say there's a likeness to God that I want for myself that oversteps the boundaries of God saying, but, but I'm going to work very hard to make you like me in all the best sense of the, the ways that he intends. And so the story of humanity beginning with turning from God, not trusting him, not honoring him, trying to take God's place or replace the place of God with something else, now characterizes humanity. That now God is not central and so what do we do? We use fear, intimidation, lies, manipulation, other things, things that have the marks of evil, not the marks of goodness. We now have the knowledge not just of good, but the knowledge of evil. We experience it. And the nature of the knowledge of good is if you don't understand evil, um, it doesn't make sense to you, but you're okay. But if you have the knowledge of evil, if you experience it, if it becomes part of what you do, then the knowledge of good becomes hard to hold together. It becomes confusing. It doesn't make sense. And so Joseph saying, am I in the place of God, says something very profound for a very powerful leader. There's something there that he has the right, the ability, the resources, but instead of exacting revenge, he, it's not simply that he knows his place in some weird, submissive, you know, being forced to conform kind of way, but in a free way where he knows the place of God. And that changes him. And so for ourselves, the temptation will always be that we take the place of God. It, it, it's not simply enough to receive God's goodness and to live in God's ways and to trust God, but we're, we're eager for a more expedient and a more thorough, the kinds of things that God has. People fear God and, and we want that. People should obey God and we want that. People honor and give thanks to God and we want that. Now those things are all good things when God is in his place. When we take God out of that place and put ourselves in it, if we are corrupt, if we are evil, then expecting people to obey us and honor us becomes threatening. Then you have to say, be afraid, for I am in the place of God. We see that all over the place. And so this is the kind of thing for all of us to reflect on, where is God in your life? <laughs> um, is God in his proper place? And so certainly for the non-Christian, if you're not a Christian, 
One of the challenges of considering Christianity is it sounds like you're being asked to step out of freedom into some weird set of rules and conformity. But Jesus actually says the exact opposite. He says that I alone am the way to freedom because I'm the one who will restore the proper order. So we, we have this sense where we say religious people, they just do what they're told. They're just obedient. They don't think for themselves. I'm free and I think for myself. But as you get in tune with our own corrupt natures, as we get in tune with the corruption of the world and how people manipulate and try to trick us, um, and then you try to live the kind of life Jesus describes, you realize very often, not too far down the way, oh yeah, there is something in the place of God. In other words, there's, there's somebody who is calling the shots in my life or giving me a vision of what's meaningful or telling me, defining for me what success is. And so often we want it to be ourselves. We want to be in the place of God. We want the honor to be to us. We want the power to be to us. But to a certain degree, as you live long enough, you realize you face things that are too big for yourself. It's actually quite intimidating <laughs> to face the world in which we live thinking the greatest power is within me. That doesn't last the whole of life. But it's once we realize, actually, there are other forces. So for instance, parents, a, a job of of a godly parent is to say, I am not in the place of God. I will show you God, but I will steward the power and the authority, and so I have to ask you to obey me or do certain things like that. It's really hard for us as parents, and so your parents may have done their best, but somehow may not have shown you that God is ultimate, but, but have left you with the impression that they are in the place of God. And it's remarkable how that stays with people long after they move out, that, that that ultimately what you'll live for is so that your parents will be proud of you. That the voice when you're about to do something is the voice of the parent who says, but you need to obey me. Uh, and, and that could be bad parenting or it could just be us and how we sat under good parenting, but somehow we didn't see that God was in his place. Our parents took that place, a place that they're supposed to steward, but they're not to be God to us. And that never leaves us. And you may find, you say, well, I don't want to be religious. <laughs> but how devoted are you to your parents? Or to some leader, some, some business leader, some athlete, some uh, artist, some successful person, where you say, well, I'm not religious, but if I wanna be like that person, if I wanna have the kind of success, I need to learn of their methods and do them and, and trust them. And all of a sudden you realize the language of devotion and trust and excitement and joy, religious language takes over your life because somebody else is defining success and a path to get there. And so, so if you're not religious, you have to think about um, if God is not in his place, are you or some other person in that place? That's not a good place to be. Jesus actually invites you to freedom. Now, for those of you who are Christian, you know, in our circles, in Presbyterian circles, sometimes we have these little, little fine-tuned tweaks to language. One of them where many Christians would say, you need God in your life. That's a fully true statement. We wouldn't disagree with that. But we might say it, it might be more careful to say, you need to be in God's life. Not that, that they're in contradiction, not that it's not true to say you need God in your life. You can say that. But there's something clarifying about saying actually you need to be in God's life because of the tendency to bring God somewhere into our atmosphere, to provide some function of good in our lives but to make sure that God is ultimately not in his proper place. That will be a temptation for everyone, no matter how long you've been a Christian. 
Uh, God may have never taken the proper place or may have for a period and then something else took over. And so it's for us to reflect on our own lives. Is God in the proper places? If I stepped into God's life that he invites me into, where have I brought something of God's appealing usefulness into my life? And what we're told is we'll be stunted unless there's something more thorough, unless like Joseph we can say, I am not in the place of God. And I've seen God in his place and his glory and power and, and that's my hope. And so you'll look for the signs that remind you maybe you're expecting a certain authority and recognition that only God has or maybe you're giving that role to something else in your life. And so what are some of the markers? Here are some examples for reflection one is do you expect the obedience of others? This is a hard area. I'm a parent, uh, you know, I, I think I have the best interest of my kids in mind and sometimes they don't understand and I need them to trust me and obey me. Uh, but the frustration that could come out when they don't listen sometimes pokes not simply at, at uh, the problem of being a child but maybe the expectation that I should be obeyed. <laughs> and so maybe you have employees or maybe you have students, whether it's in a classroom or whether you give piano lessons, but you expect somebody to obey you. And that's right, if, if, you, if you have wisdom, power, skill, you want somebody to listen to you and sometimes they need to trust you, but what happens when they don't? The wrathfulness. If we're wrathful, um, that's another sign, not just that we want people to obey us, but we, we start to harp on revenge. Vengeance is ours. That's what the New Testament warns us, no it's not. Vengeance is the Lord's. Don't take the place of God, or you'll be overcome. Um, you'll be shaped by, by the Spirit in you. Uh, so do you see those things happening? Um, another example would be a desire for appreciation. Again, the, the fact that you'd want people to like you and give you thanks is understandable. But what happens when people don't? What happens when you do something kind and people don't appreciate it enough? Well, that's a sign that something's wrong, but if we can't let go of it, maybe we're expecting a return of thanksgiving, of devotion, of affection that humbles us, where we have to say, well, you know, I'm not in the place of God. I did good. They should have thanked me and appreciated me. That would be polite. That would be right. But we should be able to move on. But we find ourselves unable to move on. One of the kinds of reflection questions for us in that is to ask, am I, ask yourself, am I taking the place of God or has something else some other goal, even if it's a good goal, is something so central that if I'm not getting it, I have no patience to wait. Joseph, through patience, learned that despite his power, authority, um, his best hope was that God was in his place. And so at the end of verse 20, it's not simply that he sees that, that God meant good in some general way, but in verse 20 he says, it's to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Over time, Joseph saw that, that the, the worst things uh, people did to him, the more God used it to do things Joseph could never have done for himself. As a 17-year-old, if he dreamed, I want to be one of the most powerful people on the earth. How do I rise the ranks in Egypt? He couldn't. He wasn't Egyptian. And yet through these uh, set of terrible circumstances, he doesn't look back and say, it was no big deal that these things happened. He looked back and said, but I can trust God, that somehow God was going to do something. And in Joseph's case, it was not simply the salvation of the very family who betrayed him, but it was the salvation of a nation that he had no identity or responsibility to prior to ha his having been sold there. 
And Joseph sees that lesson. And what we're told is, um, don't, don't be overcome by the evil of the world, but, but trust in God's wisdom and goodness and keep at it. And over time, as you are faithful, you will find that uh, it will bear out the truth. God is good. God is wise. We will see that, even if it's hard to see at the time period. So making sure God is in his place, that's where we look when we're struggling, when we're overwhelmed. God, where are you? It's not easy, but that's the task. Joseph, I imagine, struggled, but he came out at the end of his life saying, but God meant good, not just for me, but through me. Um, but it's not simply that God uh, needs to be in the proper place in our lives, but um, the idea that this story alludes to about God being in our place. That's the second thing that I want to consider, which is Joseph acts in a godly way. He forgives. He doesn't repay evil, but he actually promises to provide for the undeserving. <laughs> that's what really tests, you know, that's not normal what we see in humanity, but that's what we as Christians should believe about God. That's the nature of God and his thorough goodness. Joseph does that. So, so he's not trying to be in the place of God in terms of uh, having the right of vengeance or demanding their obedience. Um, but he is bringing something of God into that situation in stewarding his power in the way that God has stewarded his power towards Joseph. Um, and so in the second do not fear statement, the first is do not fear, am I in the place of God? But the second, verse 21, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And this is remarkable because the mindset of Joseph's brothers, their guilty conscience that seems to have evolved over the years, you see this as you read the story, that, that having heard Joseph's begging and pleading, please don't sell me, and with hard hearts they sold him over, later on they became regretful, they became aware, and you can go back and read the story, um, that they had done something that if it gets made right, it's, it's not in their interest. So in verse 15, here's their concern. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. See, the, in this story of reconciliation, they're, they're not in denial. They're not pretending. Joseph is not forgiving them and providing for them in a way that they haven't owned it. They've owned it. They're, they're clear. They know that they've done wrong. And yet... The story resolves with Joseph's statement, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, but it, it brings a resolution. But it doesn't bring the end of the story. They're not a perfect family. They've come a long way. But now that Jacob is dead, rather than having confidence in Joseph, his faithfulness to God, his forgiving character, they think Joseph perhaps was bearing patiently with us until the time that he could exact revenge because that's what we expect from other people. So they expect it from Joseph. And it's not clear when they send this message, by the way, our father said, be very kind, be, be very gentle to the brothers. It's not clear. There's nothing to indicate Jacob actually said that. Now, it's possible he did, that they were passing on a message. But what it looks like is they are making this up out of their fear. So here, once again, so much progress over the years of this family where there are these been climactic moments of of reconciliation, of acknowledgement, of forgiveness. And here again, a vulnerable moment, they lose trust in Joseph's goodness and character. 
and they respond by trying to manipulate him. They respond instead of appealing to him, they own their wrong, which is good. That's major progress. But instead of saying, please show us mercy, they say, obey your father, he has a message. And if I'm right, and many commentators are, that, that Jacob didn't say this, this is a, it's a step backwards. Joseph meets it with grace. He says words that comfort them. He speaks kindly to them, and he, he reassures them of what he's been doing. I will provide for you and for your little ones. That's verse 21. Don't be afraid. And in this moment, and again, Joseph is not perfect, but in this moment, he images God. He stewards his power. He does for them what we all hope God will do for us, to be very patient, to be very forgiving as we try to manipulate, as we try to make excuses, that we get to the end and say, look, the truth is I need help. And we appeal to God based on his character, on his mercy, on what he's done, what he said. And in that sense, the Joseph story is very helpful for us because it's a story, it's a small story that expands in the, the outworkings of the Bible until God sends Jesus, the greater Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph is about a brother who's hated and rejected and sold off and that winds up being for the salvation of the very people who reject him. And think of Jesus telling these stories about uh, the landowner who sends his son and they want to kill him or the, the stories of what's lost being found. Jesus is bringing out in greater fullness what Joseph did in, in his generation for his family. That Jesus comes to invite us, be restored to God. Trust in the goodness of God. Trust in his mercy. Now is the time of God's favor. And believe him. But what we find in his ministry is despite his uh, signs of healing, despite his care for the poor, despite his speaking with wisdom and truth, he gets to the point where the Roman governor, trying to mediate this trial, says, I've examined him, he's done nothing wrong. What is it that got the crowd so angry <laughs> that they're shouting crucify while a secular leader is saying, but he hasn't done anything wrong? It's a repeat of this reality of what we mean for evil. So here Jesus comes to announce grace to us. What is it about us? Rather than humbly receiving it, it sets us off. It's because God is not in his place in our lives. We can't get that close to goodness without it exposing us. And so we want it out. We want to, to bring God into some comfortable sphere in our lives. The Joseph story says, well, the one who was rejected is the means of salvation. That, of course, is the Jesus story. But what's profound about the Jesus story is if the problem has been we have taken God out of his proper place. What's remarkable is when we reflect on the place that God has taken for himself. And that's the story of Christianity. He's taken our place. Why was Jesus crucified? On the one hand, we would say because humanity meant evil. It's the fullest, clearest, loathing rejection of God we can fathom. And yet God meant it for good that Jesus, his own son, would take our place to bear the hostility so that we would have salvation, so that our own wrongdoings would be forgiven, so that the possibility of reconciliation with God um, would be allowed, that wherever we've tried to fit God into our lives, God can say, stop. <laughs> There's space for you in my life, so come. And it's that reorientation that comes by God's grace that, that alone changes us. If we're always thinking, 
I could just do better and then God will accept me. Um, we're living out of fear and we're going to use fear and God is not going to be in his proper place. But we'll remember that God's greatness, his commitment to provide for us is so thorough that he would come and take our place. That tells us there's, there's a different way. I, I could give up the game. I could, I could look elsewhere. I could rest. I could receive. I can learn of grace and favor and kindness. And, and then that changes you. That's what shapes you. Um, you know, if you go back to Genesis, it begins with a, with a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humanity knew good and heard about evil and needed to trust God about it. They didn't understand it. But we wanted to know evil, and now we know evil such that we have a hard time understanding good. We don't recognize it when we see it. Uh, but what Joseph learned, the climax of Genesis, a story that begins with this tension of good and evil, where Joseph at the end says, look, humanity means a lot of evil. Read the book of Genesis, the story of Noah, the story of Babylon. Um, you can keep going through it. Humanity means a lot of evil, but God still means good. God still means that we would have the tree of life. And, and so, so that lesson that we exist in a world where people will still be committed to evil, whether they know it or not, we're all tempted by it. It can overcome us and shape us unless we see that the greater power, the greater reality is that God is still good, very good, committed to good. And so, so the Christian life is different from normal religion as we conceive of it to say, if I could placate God, if I could do enough, if I could impress it, if I could learn the language of faith and articulate it, um, and fundamentally what we're told is you just need to believe that God is good, <laughs> that he will show you grace, and you need to receive it. Um, but that faith will then renew you. You'll start to see not simply the goodness of God, but, but a renewal of the goodness of this corrupted world. You'll start to see God doing good things within your heart and mind and through you. And so I was reading a guy named James Boyce who, um, there was a quote in his book from Elizabeth Elliot that I'm going to read. So Elizabeth Elliot, uh, her family is a good example of this. She was kind of a famous Christian figure in the 20th century um, uh, for faith, but also for an upright way of life. And one of the reasons, besides just her intelligence and just her ability to write well, one of the reasons she has credibility is because she was part of a missionary team that was attacked, <laughs> several people killed, and yet she remained among those people. This is somebody who believes in the resurrection, who believes that God is so good that she would give up her life for him. But in talking about her own life, um, you know, when we think she must have had this wonderful, easy life to have that kind of relationship with God. And here's what she says. She says, the experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. To have one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks just like the opposite. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct, it is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of faith that overcomes the world. And the word faith sounds so naive and easy. <laughs> that it sounds kind of like if you're not going to bother to think and look at things, we'll just believe. But Elizabeth Elliot, 
Joseph, many people are examples to say, no, actually, it's the more I looked, the more I realized there are deep troubles within me and around me. And as I looked through these confusing periods, it was the confidence that I could trust God. If he, if he took my place and he promises he will provide, then I could trust he will get me through this. And if I'm faithful in it, what legacy might I leave that on the other side of this, God may have used this crisis for some greater purpose that I'm not aware of or could imagine. And so that lesson gets passed on in, in many times, and we see it in this interesting ending of the book of Genesis where, where of all things for the, for the way for the Joseph story in the book to end, Joseph says, now take my bones out of Egypt and bury me in the promised land. It's kind of a weird way to end the book, and yet it gets picked up several times again in Scripture, the book of Hebrews, but even other than that. And so uh, verse 25, as we come to the end of the story, as we come to the end of, of uh, the book of Genesis, it says, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, on the one hand, in this restored relationship between Joseph and Jacob, his father, whose name was changed to Israel, Israel has this, Jacob has this dilemma. Do I go to Joseph to see the son that I thought was lost, or do I stay in my land and hold to the promise to my grandfather Abraham? And he gets assurance from God, if you go, I will bring you back. He thinks he's going to die in Egypt, and he does, but God brings him back. So Jacob says, now swear to me that you'll bring my bones back, and the sons do. Now here's Joseph again saying, swear to me, don't let me be buried in Egypt. But what's interesting is his brothers don't take him out of Egypt. Um, there's something about this ongoing story hinted out here. On the one hand, verse 25, Joseph makes them swear, so he's making them make the promise. But then when he says, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. <laughs> It's another installment that doesn't depend on their obedience, but he's announcing what God will do. And this is a reminder, God works over generations. It's hundreds of years later. You go to Exodus 13, Moses, when God visits them, Moses remembers the bones of Joseph. And what's interesting is the story really ends, not in Deuteronomy when Moses dies, but the, with Joshua, who goes into the land. And, and of all the weird ways to end the book of Joshua, the second to add verse, and we also put Joseph's bones in the land. It's this weird thing. What, what is it about Joseph's bones? And I'm sure there's a lot of depth to it that I don't yet grasp. But, but looking at our story, here's, here's two things just that are worth marveling at to a certain degree. One, in a story about a reconciled family, here we have another moment that these brothers don't have it right. They're owning the truth, but they're resorting to manipulation. But again, Joseph shows them grace. How did Joseph's grace to them impact them? Well, it's not simply that they had this duty to take his bones out, but somehow they passed on to their children this promise of all the things that was important enough to them that they, they made their children remember when the day God visits us, remember Joseph and his bones. <laughs> um, Joseph may not have seen the full reconciliation, the full apology, the full restoration of the brothers, but over time, they not only had guilt, they not only sought to reconcile, but even all the bumps along the road, somehow um, they came to view Joseph enough that their ancestors, 
generations down, remember Joseph and fulfill this word. And that's the kind of thing that we have to remember that God works over the generations. He doesn't work in weeks or years, and that's what's hard for us. How is God good to me in light of this last miserable year? Trust that God is good. He will provide. Wait. And when we look back, we will, we will see his wisdom. Won't answer everything. The answer to some things are people are evil. But we will look back and see how God works for good. And we see that. Here's the second thing about Joseph's bones that's an interesting note to me. You know, if you think of the nature of the story, um, Joseph has this dream that the brothers will bow down to him and they hate him. They resent that he's the favorite child of, of Israel. So they sell him into slavery and tell the father that he's dead. So as far as the father knows, he will never see him again. So by the plan of the brothers, we've gotten rid of Joseph. We want to receive the promises to Abraham and Isaac and our father Jacob. But we don't want Joseph to be part of it because he seems to be the favored one. Um, it's interesting as things work themselves out. God is kind to the 12 sons of Israel because all of them are delivered out of Egypt. All of them are brought in and given a place in the land. But only one of them is buried. And that's kind of curious. The brothers who said, let's get rid of Joseph so this land can be ours. Well, they get it as God promised through the inheritance. God is gracious to them. But a result of what they've done is, well, God would save them through the one that they rejected. But as far as we know, other than legends, but by the biblical record, their bones are still in Egypt. But Jacob makes it back by the promise of God. And the story of Jacob, who just wanted to marry Rachel, and have a son, and Joseph was the firstborn, and this whole confusing story that causes all these problems, somehow in the midst of all of the bad responses of this family, God works not simply to save this family and the nation for the time, but, but so that he would prepare the way for Jesus to, to send the message throughout the world. But he doesn't forget Jacob and his desires. And so, as it turns out, Jacob doesn't simply wind up in the tomb of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah, his wife. But Isaac winds up in the same land as Joseph, his son. It's this weird sort of small detail that, that what I'm highlighting is not necessarily the theologically rich application of his bones, but it's a reminder that somehow God, over time, is going to tie up the loose ends. And that's the kind of thing that in the, in the confusing uh, nature of this world as we know it, where, where the lines are not neat and evil corrupts everything, for us to hold by faith that if God's plan, if central was the rejection of Jesus for me, and that God promises that he will include me when all things are revealed, well then today, I'm not going to look at the evil people and become like them. But I'm going to hold firmly to the goodness of God. And as we keep looking there, we image God in this world. God has left us here to be messengers and agents of his salvation. So this week, what challenge will you face that you could stop and say, I'm not in the place of God? But God has put me in this place. And I'm going to pray and full of the Spirit, I'm going to bring God into this place because goodness can overcome evil. And it may not work this week, but keep going, and we're told God will be with you. And if your hope is in him, you will see his wisdom and his goodness. This Joseph story reminds us of that, but it's one story of many. It's the story of Christ, and you're invited to it. Let me pray for us.
Our Father, we gather again as a people who come with half-hearted faith and, and with other things in our lives that give us hope and identity, and we come as angry people, as struggling people, as failing people. But here we are. You've assembled us. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, remind us of your goodness. Remind us there is a better way. Help us to see the wisdom of how, no matter what we do, with evil intentions and actions, you will remain good, and that Jesus is the ultimate evidence and proof of that, more proof and evidence than anything else that we can take hold of. Lord, embed that enough in our hearts and minds that you take your proper place, that we allow you to ascend the throne, that we see your power and glory, and with humility uh, start to live that good life that Jesus offers for those who trust him. So help us this week not simply to live it, but to believe it with such firmness that we bring it to our friends and family and neighbors. Lord, use us to be an agent that pushes against the corruption of the world, that we would go with you um, uh, in the right place in our hearts, and uh, we would be your presence in this world. Grant us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.